This is God's word. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Read that far in God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, the section in which we're studying tonight, uses the term wisdom 16 times. It's certainly a theme for Paul, but why? Why wisdom? Because the word wisdom was an important word that had been misused in the city of Corinth, the, the city in which the church lived where Paul was writing. It's the idea of wisdom for Christians and the idea of wisdom for the, the world, the city in Corinth that was at stake. And he had been discussing this in previous paragraphs. Now, the first thing Paul needed to do was to say what wisdom was not. That began with acknowledging how the rulers of this age were using the term and presenting the concept as you saw at the first part of our passage. But here's the main point of this sermon and the good news. As Christ completes us into true maturity, in which we lack nothing, he grants us the essential gift of wisdom. Uh, Number one, not the wisdom of human ingenuity, which is not wisdom at all. We'll see in verse 6. Number two, point number two of the sermon, rather we receive the true wisdom of God that was formerly secret, verses 7 and 8. And third and last point of the sermon will be the Spirit reveals this wisdom to us, verses 9 and 10. So let's dig in, starting with the start verse, verse 6. Let me read that again. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So notice the word mature. We have it in our title, for mature persons. Uh, Among the mature, he writes. Mature, this word means complete. The totality as opposed to partiality. Do you have everything you need or are you missing something? That idea of having everything you need. The full-grown person is the mature one. Not yet needing to reach a, a point of full maturity. Verse 6, Paul starts here by acknowledging there's another kind of wisdom, which is not true wisdom. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. This world's brand of wisdom is only human ingenuity with a limit on how far human creativity can take us. Human figuring. Paul labels this in verse 6 as a batch of wisdom, quote, of this age. Or he then has another way to say it right after that, of the rulers of this age. What about those rulers? They were doomed to pass away, he he goes on to write. They are continuously doomed to be passing away, to be diminishing, to become powerless. They, They don't have a future. That's what he's saying. Uh, to be wasting away these rulers, the ones who are, are 
over all things in Corinth and over things in the Roman world of Paul's day were in the process of being reduced to nothing. It was a continuous and unstoppable process of them falling down. So he's describing true wisdom and false wisdom. And who gets to say? Who gets to say what wisdom is? How dare Paul write definitively on what wisdom is and is not? It raises the real the question that we've been looking at for previous passages. What is real wisdom? God gets to define the word wisdom and the concept of wisdom, what true wisdom is. And he does so here with his apostle Paul. God gets to define maturity. The mature, who are those? What does it mean? Maturity meaning completeness. God gets to define this. If the people in the city of Corinth were the ones who were able to define wisdom or maturity, then they would define it in the world's terms. And we talked a little about that in previous messages. The world's terms are the same today as they were in Corinth. Better education, high status, most giftedness. But who was acting appropriately in all situations? Who had life-encompassing wisdom? God defines that for us. And it touches the question of all the world's religions. Questions of God, questions of humanity, what does it mean to be a human? Questions of pure knowledge, what does true pure knowledge mean? Questions of the source of that knowledge, how do you know? An application of that knowledge, what should we do knowing this? Questions of mysteries, he even uses the word uh, mystery in our, our chapter. Questions of wisdom, of course. Questions of revelation, what does God show to humans? And questions of the future, future Glory is mentioned in this passage. The, the core issue is the contrast that Paul's making between true wisdom and false wisdom, between God's wisdom and this world's wisdom. He's writing and defining that and distinguishing it in a unique way that we can grasp. The, the way he defines it is between a child and an adult, between a childish way of thinking, which would be this world's wisdom, and an adult way of thinking, which would be God's wisdom. So the phrase that's most familiar to us is coming up later in chapter 13 of this letter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Eleven chapters beyond where we are now, where Paul goes on to write famously, when I was a child, I reasoned like a what? Like a child. When I became a man, I gave up what? Childish ways. And what's less familiar to us is what Paul then wrote later in chapter 14, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So in other places, he confirms what he's writing here as his distinguishing characteristic for wisdom. An essential dynamic of wisdom for Paul in writing this letter was a contrast at the very level of the definition of wisdom itself a contrast between those who are and those who are not spiritually mature. That's what he's discussing. That's what wisdom has. So not the wisdom of human ingenuity, which is not wisdom at all, verse 6, but now we move on to verses 7 and 8 in our second point. Rather, we receive the true wisdom of God that was formerly secret. Again, verse 7. But we impart, you know, in contrast, the word but, so this is what the world offers and this is what the apostle offers, we, the Christians, impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So this secret dynamic 
was the idea that sinful human capacities of understanding cannot penetrate God's truth and God's wisdom without the event of Christ crucified and the subsequent gift of the work of his Holy Spirit. So the word secret here, or the, the word as it is sometimes translated into English well and effectively, is the word mystery, secret, or mystery. It's something too profound for human ingenuity to discover. It's something that was formerly hidden and now revealed, formerly secret and now shown to everyone. This is no longer a mystery. But how do you get it? The, the point that Paul's making is no human mind... In fact, no collection of human minds coming together for discussion or study or conferring would be able to arrive at the wisdom of God. All of the best, smartest people in ancient Corinth could gather and they couldn't get to this. And the same for the modern world. All the best, smartest people across a city or across a country could gather together and contemplate these matters and they couldn't get this far. They couldn't arrive at the wisdom of God. The point that he's making is this. God must disclose it. God must reveal it. God must give it, or it's not given. It's not possessed. God must impart wisdom for wisdom to be gained. God can, and God does. But he also do the opposite. God can harden man's heart, Romans eleven twenty five. God can announce things to happen later, such as prophesying when Christ would come. God can transform whole persons. You can look ahead, see 1 Corinthians 15, 51. God can open minds to grasp spiritual knowledge when formerly that mind could not grasp that spiritual knowledge. Think of what Paul wrote elsewhere in Colossians 2, 2, that their hearts may be encouraged to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Colossians 2, 2. So when he's writing here about the spiritually mature, there are those upon whom God has imparted his wisdom. The spiritual adults, if you will, are those who have come under the word of the cross, come under the influence of the Spirit of God. Consider the only two categories of people that he started off with all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you have the perishing group, and then you have us, those who are not perishing, who are alive, who have been rescued, spiritually aware. To those who are foolish, who are perishing, the word of the cross is foolish, and to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. So there's two categories of people all the way back since chapter 1, verse 18. And he's still working on that concept of two groups of people, the spiritually mature, those who are being saved and those who are not, who are still childish and their thinking is in this world. And so how do we identify the spiritually mature? Because they hear the word of the cross as the power of God. They respond to the cross of Christ, the preaching of the cross of Christ, and say that's the power of God. The spiritually immature only hear folly as they hear the word of the cross. Why? Because they're perishing. Why are they perishing? Because they lack spiritual wisdom. They don't have because God has not granted it to them. Again, this this wisdom is important for Paul in this whole unit of these three chapters, one, two, and three. And from from where we are in our study today here in chapter two, then going forward into the next chapter, chapter three, verse one, 
Paul lamented the condition of the Corinthians was not yet to that desirable level of spiritual maturity. So I just want to take you forward beyond our text for a minute to see just how this fits in with his whole argumentation. Right after Paul wrote that we all have the mind of Christ as part of our blessings from God in chapter 2, 16, then in the next verse, which is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, Paul wrote this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, listen, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So again, the contrast is between spiritually mature and infants in Christ. The same contrast exists in Hebrews 5, 13 to 14, where we read, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Again, Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. So other places in the Bible support what Paul is here making as a contrast. The contrast is not between the struggling and the perfect. No one can achieve perfection in this world. Rather, the contrast is between infants and adults, between the immature and the mature. What did that mean? It meant possessing wisdom is key. The mature are those who accessed, received, and already possessed such a stance of wisdom, such a perception of spiritual matters that they're ready to receive more wisdom from God when they hear it. They're ready to perceive and reject as foolishness, whatever's foolishness when they hear that. And the mature understand that wisdom began with Christ and all wisdom is contained in Christ. For example, as wise King Solomon wrote in one of his Proverbs, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then again, as Paul himself wrote in Colossians 2, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can't tell an adult something silly and make them believe it. I don't tell a story here that doesn't make me look real good, but remember I was very young at the time. I actually believe what one of my neighbor kids told me, that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I had to be three or four, I don't know, five. So I asked my siblings to come with me to go find the pot of gold. After it had rained, it was a gigantic rainbow. We just set off and I asked mom and dad if they'd like to come. They said, no thanks. So we walked down the road. I don't know why they don't want gold, a whole pot of gold. It's just sitting there waiting. So we walked down the road, and the rainbow seemed to get farther away and farther away. We walked until we got hungry and came back home. You can't tell an adult to go chase after gold, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. They'll say it's silly, but a child will fall for it. The difference is significant here. He's talking about child versus adult, immature versus mature thinking. This condition of being a recipient of the true wisdom of God was a gift. Look back at chapter 1, verse 30. Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Christ Jesus became to us righteousness, verse 30. Christ Jesus became to us sanctification, chapter 130. Christ Jesus became to us redemption, chapter 130. If we have spiritual maturity, 
it was a gift from God. The wisdom comes from God. The maturing comes from Christ. So now let's look at verse uh, 7. So we've talked about the secrets and hidden wisdom of God. But look at that phrase at the end of verse 7, which God decreed before the ages for whose glory? You would think it would say for his glory. But it says for our glory. There's something that Christians get. There's glory that Christians get here in verse 7. It means we get salvation. We get wisdom. We get power. We get redemption. We get righteousness. The things we were just listing in chapter 1, verse 30. That's glorious stuff. So we get glory. How does that glory show itself in these various gifts? Sanctification, wisdom, power, redemption. And it all arises from one giver, one place. Christ and him crucified. So the, the cross was the fountainhead of the flowing gifts of God's blessings. And all this coming to us for our glory. So when Paul moves beyond that statement, for our glory in verse 7, now to verse 8, Paul reflected that it was the centrality of the cross that was the missing element in the mindset of unbelievers. Listen to this carefully in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the word if in Paul's sentence in verse 8 is interesting and uncommon. If they had known that crucifying Jesus would only appear to wreck God's purposes, while in reality crucifying Jesus would fulfill God's purposes, they would not have participated in it. They would not have participated in the hateful and murderous act of crucifying Jesus. If they had any inkling that Jesus, in being crucified, would definitively win, they would not have crucified him. How could they have known that glory would belong to the one that they were able to crucify? They didn't understand this, Paul writes in verse 8. They could not have understood this because it's spiritually discerned. These are the huge, deep things of God. This is the central thing in the history of the world. This is the gospel message, what the Bible's all about. The crucifixion of Jesus and God's salvation of us. But the people in the world who participated in the actual event of either ordering or nailing him to the cross... The powers that be and those who participated it were deficient in their knowledge and understanding of what was truly happening there. They were children in their spiritual outlook. Jesus provides us with a view of this, with this glory, true glory. True glory is to serve another, to help another, to give up self, to benefit another, as Jesus himself did at that cross. To do so at such an extreme level that the Lord himself, the Lord of glory, would be crucified, uncovers the core character of the Lord. The glory of his love, the glory of his care, his giving, his providing. And the world is listed here as the opposite. There's two contrasts here. The world, in the opposite of Jesus, is selfish, taking, uncaring, subtracting, declining. So we have a giant contrast list. On the one side is we, on the other side is they. We, verse 7, are future glorification. They, verses 6 and 8, rulers of this age. We, verse 9, those who love God. They, verse 8, who crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't love him, they crucified him. 
They are the influential, the powerful. But they have shame because they crucify the Lord of glory. We have Jesus, who is glory. He has become our glory. We have wisdom because we have Jesus, so he has become our wisdom. And Jesus is self-giving, so he makes our character self-giving. But they are foolish and greedy and take for self. Jesus produces in us a kind of Christ-like glory, heavenly glory, the fullness to our humanity, the maturity of who we're supposed to be made in the image of God, redeemed in the image of God. They have some missing pieces in their humanity. What kind of humanity is it that would take the Son of God and crucify him? So the cross is the the triumph to the Lord of glory. The Son was glorified on Resurrection Day, yes. But he was also, in a sense, if you allow me to say it this way, he was also glorified on Good Friday itself. I know it's a part of his humiliation, and we study that, but what does this verse mean, verses 7 and 8, if it doesn't mean that they crucified the Lord of glory, that even in his crucifixion it shows how much glory he has? He's the Lord of glory in a beautiful way in which he's being crucified for us. That moment was a watershed moment, was the most glorious moment in human history. The only time the phrase Lord of glory is used in the Bible is right here in verse 8. They crucify the Lord of glory. It's connected to the verb crucified, Lord of glory. Crucified, the Lord of glory. Of course, the cross was not the end of the Lord of glory. Of course, his resurrection. Of course, his ascension back to heaven where glory is pronounced in his coronation. But the cross as Paul focuses us, is that essential moment without which none of the rest of it would follow or could follow. It was upon that cross, the essentiality of the cross, that Jesus removed the stinger from the sting of death, which he will come to talk about in chapter 15. It's all building towards the glory of chapter 15. He will celebrate in such terms in this letter as this, chapter 15, 55. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, like he's calling out to death. Where is your sting? He's mocking death. We were given the victory over death and sin and law's judgment through the Lord of glory, Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other method in which we can receive victory, no other message to receive wisdom, no other message to receive maturity, salvation, forgiveness, We see the cross and we cry, glory. The Lord of glory crucified there. Consider what Paul wrote elsewhere, Galatians 6.14. Far be it from me to boast except. What's the only thing Paul would boast in? Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And again, John in Revelation 5, 9 says this. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. What makes Christ worthy? What makes him worthy to open the seals? Listen for it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5, 9. 
So what have we seen in our second point? We receive the wisdom from God that was formerly secret, that we understand these things. To our last point now, verses 9 and 10, the Spirit reveals this wisdom to us. Again, verse 9, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Let's unpack this. A quotation here from Isaiah 64, 3 and 4, with an allusion from Isaiah 65, 17, and joyfully, Jeremiah 3, verse 16. The point of verse 9 is that our knowledge is mature or complete, that we have no deficiency of knowledge like the rulers of the age did back in verse 8. We have complete knowledge. That's the point. And showing here, Paul, in verse 9, while there was something that the rulers of the age did not understand when they crucified Jesus, while there are those things that are not seen by any human eye, while there are those things that are not heard by any human ear, and while there are those things that are not imagined by any human heart, namely the things of God that he has prepared and is preparing for us, for those who love him, those things... All of those things he has revealed to us. It doesn't mean we hear them yet. It doesn't mean we see them yet, but we understand them. He's telling us about them. We get it. We're told about it. How are those things revealed to us? He goes on to say in verse 10 that those things are revealed to us by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is showing you things about the beyond. It means three things logically. One, the Spirit is privy to the information. Two, the Spirit has the authority and privilege to reveal that information to us. It's no longer a secret, but can be revealed to the people of God. And third, there is no other source for this information. You can't Google it and find it. You can't find it in an encyclopedia. There's no human source of wisdom. It takes the Spirit of God to reveal this information to the people of God. Well, isn't it in the Word of God? Well, yes, it's in the Word of God. But there are people who read the Word of God and don't grasp it. There's people who hear gospel messages and don't grasp it. There are people who still don't believe that Jesus was crucified. So they don't gain redemption. They don't gain wisdom. They don't gain salvation. So the Spirit's work is required along with the Word of God so that people can gain the glory of God and these blessings revealed to us. The Spirit of God reveals to us what is in the sacred pages that God loves us so much that it has prepared a heaven for us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined, and heaven will be granted to us because of the cross. The Spirit reveals this to us, all of it. Humans cannot search through things and arrive at this knowledge on their own any more than they can build a tower, call it the Tower of Babel, and reach heaven by it. Our own human wisdom and efforts are not sufficient to gain this high wisdom and incredible knowledge. So next in verse 10 is this sentence. He's not even done. Verse 10, he writes this. For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God, then this is not a searching in order to discover. It's a searching to explore, 
to gather, to gather from everything everywhere in order to package it up and bring it to us for delivery. We would say searches out or explores. The Spirit digs into the depths of God the Father, everything that God is up to in the heavens, everything that God is doing in his preparation for his people to arrive in heaven with him. Everything that God is doing that only God has seen, only God has heard, only God has imagined, those things, the Spirit is granted authority to explore all of that and explain to us what no other human beings have seen or heard. The Spirit of God paints a picture for us in our imaginations and through passages of Scripture of something that otherwise would be blocked even from our imagining. And the Spirit officially acts as a spokesperson for heaven and says that there are deep purposes of God at work here, and the deep character of God is being shown in these events. The Spirit of God shows us God the Father. It shows us his heart for us and his plan for us and his redemption for us. That though we were sinners, we're being cleansed and we're, we're being welcomed into his family and have a home being prepared for us. We come to get to know the depths of God's own self. Understand that th- this is only for those who love God, verse 9. This is only through God's Spirit, verse 10. The Spirit reveals to us our Heavenly Father's innermost heart. So here in verse 10, we have the the depths of God. The depths of God. In just six more verses later, we'll be told that we have the mind of Christ. We have the depths of God here, verse 10. We have the mind of Christ, verse 16. Wow. What more could you want? Exactly. We're not missing anything. We're mature. We have everything. We're complete in the totality of everything you could ever want. We have the depths of God and the mind of Christ. There's nothing more that you could ever want or need. You're lacking no good thing. It just wells up into praise for him. So what have we seen? Christ completes us into true maturity in which we lack nothing. He grants us the essential gift of wisdom. Not the wisdom of human ingenuity, which is no wisdom at all. Rather, we receive the true wisdom of God, which is formerly secret. And the Spirit reveals this wisdom to us. So my concluding application is this. Receive. Receive and celebrate the gift of the wisdom from God that he gives to us through the preaching of Christ crucified. As Paul wrote back in chapter 1, 23, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let me, let me put it this way. Why do we come to church? And a child says, amen. <laughs> Try to explain this to the infant mind, right? Contrary to false belief of the health and wealth gospel, as we call it, we don't come to church to become healthy and wealthy. Instead, we come to church because the Spirit of God here uses the Word of God to, in another way, in the spiritual realm, make us rich in wisdom and wealthy in knowledge. 
We come to church because there's no other place that the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, gives out wisdom to the people of God, that you truly understand the depths of God and the mind of Christ. Where else do you go? Walgreens? This is where it's given out. That's why we come to church. We come to know and understand the good things, the best things, the best of all things. We get to know God himself, the Father and the Son by his Spirit. It's interesting, there's one set of people who never come to church. You couldn't pay them, drag them, force them, (laughs) allure them. You couldn't get them here. They just never come to church by intention. That's one set of people. You have another set of people who never miss the opportunity. Let me ask you this. Which group is wise? (laughs) We know that the Spirit hands out things right here and only right here. That the Spirit hands them out only to people who know God and love God. It's amazing what God has prepared for those who love him. We read in verse 9. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Just amazing. I'll close with this. It's out of a psalm. It just supports what we've been saying. Listen to this inspired expression of how we feel, why we wouldn't miss this. Psalm 84, 10 to 12. The psalmist is saying to God, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Father, we receive here